welcome to the Fram Park Center for Faith and Life in Scottsdale, Arizona. This is the Out of the Park podcast series. We invite you to join us for other programming you can find on our website at www.framparkcenter.org. Join us. Welcome to the Out of the Park podcast, a ministry of the Fran Park Center for Faith and Life here in Scottsdale, Arizona. Today we have with us a special guest, Stephanie Saldana, who just did our Fran Park Center Memorial Lecture, and so we're catching her right on the, uh, the, right on the heels of that. And so we welcome you, Stephanie, and let me tell you all just a little bit about Stephanie. Stephanie is a writer, and uh, along with many other things. But Stephanie began her life in San Antonio, Texas, uh, here as a, a, in a Mexican-American family, but went to Middlebury College in Vermont, and then on to do journalist work throughout the world, but especially in the Middle East, and then returned to do some theological studies at Harvard Divinity School, and from there did a, a fellowship on studying Jesus and the role of Islam in the Middle East. And we are the beneficiaries of all of her experiences that she has woven together in three books, at least. Her first book was uh, the, the Bread of Angels, which came out in 2010, which chronicles uh, her year uh, in Syria, studying both Arabic and really learning about Jesus in Islam, while also at the same time spending time in a monastery in the hills north of Damascus, really exploring her uh, Christian meditation and uh, exploration of Ignatian exercises, as well as learning a lot about life and how to integrate the experiences of the Middle East with um, uh, faith and how God brings so many paths together. So, Stephanie, just uh, welcome to uh, the Out of the Park podcast, and we're going to recap a little bit of what we talked about in the Fran Park Center lecture that, that you brought us through. So, um, what's your impression so far? You've been on a book tour for three weeks here in the U.S. You are a resident of Bethlehem uh, in the Holy Land, and and you've been here now for three weeks. Any sense of what has been your impression of the last three weeks as you've been here back in the U.S. after 17 years? Well, uh, wow, it's just so good to be home, I have to say. I, I had the joy of returning back to San Antonio, where I'm from, and seeing my family, I have a great big family. My father was one of eight. My mother was one of six. So I have many, many cousins. Uh, I, I had a great event, which was packed, but only two people were not family members, I believe. And so just the joy of, of connection has been great. It's been great to be home. So this book tour coincides with the release of your latest book, What We Remember Will Be Saved. And in that, you chronicle the lives and experiences of especially Syrian and Iraqi refugees, people who have lived in there from communities that are historic Christian communities, Muslim communities, and in northern Iraq, Yazidi communities as well. And uh, what inspired you first on this, this journey to tell these many stories? What inspired you first to take this road uh, in chronicling the lives of refugees? Well, I lived in Syria before the, the war, as you know, as it was the subject of my first book. Um, and I, and in so many ways, Syria made me who I am. It's where I learned Arabic and met my husband. And I had so many friends and teachers there. And so when the, when the war started in 2011, it wasn't a war that was about strangers. It was my family, like people who felt like family. 
um, friends, neighbors. And then the, the war moved into northern Iraq. I'm from the Syriac Catholic Church, and so uh, it was many people from my church, as well as just people from the region. And eventually, the United Nations stopped counting the number of the dead in Syria. I was astonished by the fact that they would stop counting the dead. And I thought, how could it be that we don't even care enough to count the dead anymore? And so I wanted to tell some human stories to just hear from people what they were saving, for them to start to talk about what they left behind and what they were carrying with them, and to show some of the incredible diversity and beauty of the region. Yeah, I want to read for everybody just one passage from your time in Syria before the war, and this is uh, your observations. And what I have appreciated about your writing for the last 13 years is your capacity to to take it all in, to observe, and then to to filter it in such a way, everything that you're observing through the language, the, the poetic language, the poetic imagination. And so you help to tell the stories of these places and times. And so we have a little bit of something that's captured in time that may be very difficult to recover. And here is a snapshot from Damascus itself with um, in front of the Umayyad Mosque. And so we have these, these speaking in your voice. I come to the Umayyad Mosque to witness a miracle. At around five o'clock every evening, the sun begins to set over Damascus, and the light gathers in a pool over the white marble courtyard, illuminating the tiles until everyone walking on it appears as though they are angels. Light reflects from the ground up into their bodies. They look weightless. Each time I witness it, I am almost moved to tears at the sight of humans so ethereal, so transcendent, that they might have wings, might press their toes against the ground and then lift off, away from all this madness. Nothing appears sinister in that light. And that's from the, the Bread of Angels. And yet there's a little bit of foreshadowing of something that maybe wasn't even true when you wrote that book, but they're saying that they might step off of the, the, the material frame of reference. They might just step off out of this madness. What was the madness you were referring to at that time, which we can, we can see comes a few years later, but what, was the, what madness were you trying to reference at that point? I mean, already there was so much tension. That book was, it took place during the... Um the invasion of Iraq. There were many, many Iraqi refugees in Syria. Um, later on in that year, uh, Rafiq Hariri was assassinated in Lebanon. Um, there was already the, the conflict between Israel and Palestine. And so geographically, it was located already, even before this current war, between so much tension. And so even in that time, people often say about that first book, The Bread of Angels, how did you know? I often hear that from Syrians, how did you know? And I didn't know, but there was already a sense of so much that was fractured and so many good and beautiful people trying to live their lives. One of the things that people find very surprising when I tried to communicate my own experiences in the Middle East, and I, when I say to them especially things like, I have never experienced hospitality the way that I've experienced in the Middle East. I say, if you want, want, ever want us to understand 
the mystical nature of hospitality go to the Middle East. And because I, there's no other way for me to describe it, to see it is uh, the experience of somebody seeing you and meeting you for the first time. And there's this great Arabic phrase, you know, ahlan wa sahlan, you know, and it's this the sense of, and it bursts out of people like they can't contain this sense of welcome. You are welcome. You are welcome. You are part of the family. Come in. And it's almost an envelopment. You know, that's the way I've experienced that phrase says it's like this embrace of generations comes and says, you must be you must come to our home. We are part of one another. And so and what was that year you spent in Syria? What was your experience of hospitality? Um, people offered me tea, offered me food, asked me to sleep in their house. Uh, Muslims offered to teach me, uh, allowed me to teach in their mosques, um, not Christianity, but, but English. Uh, people... There were friendships across faiths. Uh, at the monastery of Der Marmusa, where much of the book takes place, is is a radical experience of hospitality. It's a monastery in the middle of the desert, where um, based on hospitality, and so nobody calls in advance to say they were coming. You would just arrive, and at the beginning of the day, the monastery had no idea if ten people were would come or 200 people would come. And they welcomed everyone. You didn't pay anything. And there was always enough food. And there was always enough places to sleep. Um, It was really the miracle of the loaves and fishes. And so I really learned there what it, we often say in the Middle East uh, that we, you know, the desire to live uh, a life of abundance instead of a life of scarcity which means to to live today as though there is always enough and to treat others with the belief that there is always enough. Um, I would also say that hospitality means that without the other, I cannot be myself. And that's where that real joy comes from. People are deeply joyous to be able to welcome others. It helps them to be themselves. And I think I, I find in my own Western experience I find that as a rarity, you know, the sense of people are welcoming, but there was nothing like this sense of, I mean, it takes your breath away. The sense of uh, uh, once I was at um, uh, the monastery and convent above Carmel mm-hmm. uh, and and on the coast just below Haifa. Right. And no. Yeah. Anyway, just below Haifa. And I went into a little shop there at the, the church, the convent and uh uh, there was a little bookshop, and I was looking around, and I asked the person working there, a young woman, I said, I said, do you have any Christian music in Arabic, right? And she pointed me to a group of CDs, which were like first century, re- I mean, re- recreations of first century music. And I said, oh, no, I, I'm not really interested in that. I, I would want something a little more modern. And then she stopped, and she looked at me, and then she went over to a tape deck near her, and she pulled out a tape there, and she walked over, and she said, we don't have anything in the store like that, but this is mine, and I listen to it every day while I'm working here. She says, but it's for you. And I said, well, how, how much do you want for it? She says, oh, no, 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 no. She goes, this is clearly for you. And I just, you know, I this is the kind of thing that, you know, just that expanded my understanding of 
people who have experienced could have experienced so much violence or repression or oppression, uh, alienation, yet they responded to the stranger in a way to say, what's mine is yours. And so I think you offer us that in your writing really well. I mean, you say people gift you with their stories and you gift us with their stories. And so what I hear then is, uh, we're going to get to the, your your newest book, but uh, what I hear then is this, always this sense of, uh, sometimes there's a little skepticism, but then the but hospitality grows. And so in your second book, you really h- highlight for us what it means for you as you and your husband uh, live in Jerusalem uh, in a world that's right between Arab-Palestinian, Jewish-Israeli world, and you have to navigate these back and forth. And your first place to live is a, con- is a convent, right? Is a department kind of owned by the convent, yeah. is that right? And how did they first receive you? I mean, your request to live there. Um, I'm trying to remember oh, what I they said about this. Um, I think there was a little, I mean, I'm just, I, I listened to the book recently, mm-hmm. and it wasn't a little sense of skepticism yes, about who is exactly. this French man and this young yes. American woman? And, exactly. And, right, yeah. and then they, they actually uh, contacted the monastery in Syria um, to make sure that my husband, who had been a novice monk there, was okay. And then uh, they came back and told me that sort of the mother general of their their order, when she they had to ask permission, and she said, oh, I remember, I went to that monastery in Syria in the desert, and there was a young man who offered me tea, and that was my husband, right? And she said, oh, of course. And so, again, it was remembering his hospitality and then rejoicing at the ability to return that hospitality. So it's precisely from that hospitality that we, we arrived in that home. And then in places where people gain trust over time. Yeah. And so I also, in that book, we hear about the neighbors, that some that set up, they set up their little shop, I mean, they're, Selling is it, is it pastries or bread? Somebody's selling stuff right in front of your your door of your house, right? Yeah, they're sh- they're 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 selling kake. Kake is like the famous Jerusalem uh, bread, which is a long sort of sesame bread that they sell at Damascus Gate, and they sell it in front. And there's a a great story in the book. So I have my son um, Joseph is born in this book in Bethlehem, and uh, there's a great moment where I am taking him around the neighborhood in his stroller and people just keep giving him stuff. They keep giving him, you know, wooden camels and sweets and cock and desserts and lollipops. And I'm just overwhelmed. And I arrive at our front door and Abu Hussam, who's in front of our door, gives him something and I just lose it and I said enough if you keep giving him things he's going to be so spoiled and he stops and he says this is between you me and your son and so I was a little bit taken aback and he saw that and he said listen when a child sees us giving things to him it becomes second nature to give things away this is what they learn from their childhood We're not giving your child things. We're teaching him generosity. Mm. And that's uh, something we I encounter throughout your book too. Is that you you keep meeting these people who's the generosity of spirit. And I think that's 
those who travel through life with the generosity of spirit draw others uh, of like nature to themselves. And so I think that's your real gift in the world as well. With your third book, we enter into the tone of your writing shifts for me somewhat. You know, the first two are these, and there's clear tensions behind every story, right? But the third book takes us into the heart of conflict, violence, and uh, destruction, and glimmers of hope. And so we hear stories of refugees. And tell us, you can tell us here on the on our podcast, but uh, what drew you into this part of your journey of now telling not, not your own stories, but other people's stories? How did that begin? Well... I mean, when the war started, I just had the question of what I can do. I think for me... Uh, so just take a step back. When you say the war started, remember, there's so many wars in that area. Which which one are you talking about at this well, point? When the war in, in Syria mm-hmm. started in 2011 in the wake of the Arab Spring. Um, so these were my friends, my my people, the people who made me who I am. And it was absolutely devastating. Um, Father Paolo, who I write about in my first book, was kidnapped by ISIS and uh, disappeared. Father Jacques Murad, another close friend, was was kidnapped as well. Uh, He was later released. Our third priest we were close to, um, Franz Vanderloot, was also assassinated. So even if the war was happening to other people more than me, it was still something that was affecting me very deeply. Um, and I think, I mean, maybe I don't always speak about the war, this, I mean, the, the book this way, because it's a book written for all audiences, not just Christian audiences. And it's very much a multi-faith and interfaith book. But I think for me, it was an act of witness. I felt that I needed to at least witness what was happening and to try to, to, um, listen to the stories so that other people could hear them. Yeah. And so even this week as we record this podcast, we have two major conf- two major events happening. Uh, Armenians are being expelled and fleeing in vast numbers from a region of Azerbaijan or a region that's being taken over by Azerbaijan. And so they're fleeing into Armenia itself. And uh, we're talking the numbers, you know, up to 50,000 people, and each one carries a story. Uh, they're, they're fleeing at the last moment. They're taking nothing with them. And so this, uh, this is mirrored in your writings from the last, I mean, you've been gathering these stories for a number of years now, but this is still ongoing. And so this is why I think your book is so important that it, for us who have a short attention span, because of our, our media has a short attention span, if something's not you know, right happening at that moment, we lose track of it. And so you help us to keep track of these stories. And um, on top of that, also, a an event happened a few days ago in Karakosh in northern Iraq, a Christian town. There was a Christian wedding. And these are people who today had fled once and had been found it safe enough to return to northern Iraq as Christians and uh, a very large wedding celebration, and in that, uh, fire starts. And even though there were 900 people there, maybe 100 people died in that. And for some reason, my phone is showing me footage of that wedding and the fire just constantly. And I'm surprised. I don't know if it's just things that I showing me things that I would be interested in, but to see that, very striking, and to know that you write about this town. So, what? 
what is it about Karakosh that uh, first drew you there? Um, well, it's Syriac Catholic, which is also my community. Um, but I learned about this this town um, from a woman named Hannah, who I write about in the book, who, when she escapes Karakosh in 2014 with her husband and three children, she doesn't know what to do. It was her whole life, her family, her history. When she realizes they're not going back again, she knows that she needs to bring it with her somehow. And so she sews the story of Karakosh into a dress. She sews her home, her churches, her language. They speak a dialect of the language of Jesus there. Um, she she sews people dancing at a wedding, each one dressed uniquely. Um, and I learn from her dress and from her about this town she left behind. And by paying attention to this dress, I begin to meet all of the people who escaped this town and, and to learn the story behind the headlines of these remarkable human beings um, and what they lost and what they've saved. Um, so I've always been a little astonished that this story was not more widely known by the world. And so this book was an opportunity to tell it. We often speak of history being told by the victors. You know, so much of our human history we have retained tells the story of those who won the battle, right? And uh, who maybe their stories that arise uh, come out of those who had the capacity to write and tell stories and retain stories. So we had upper echelon of society telling stories. And so we have s relatively little story told by those you know, who were most affected by the the immediate poverty, the immediate nothingness, that one is landless, placeless, peopleless, familyless, everything less, right? And you give us, you change the, the, the thread of history by telling those who are least able to tell their own stories. Well, it's interesting that you say that because they do tell their own stories. I just think that they don't necessarily reach us. Mm -hmm. And so I really try to be a bridge. Um, I remember, you know, when people say, you know, that I give voice to the voiceless, I always say, no, they're talking all the time. <laughs> we just don't know how to hear them. We don't have channels to, to listen to them. And so I try to, to make that connection. But they are historians. They mm. are carrying their history. And the stories they tell matter deeply to their communities. And I think that, as you said, no story of this moment in history is complete without their stories. And so we we get the, the very humanness of, of their stories. And there's two things, there are two metaphors as we you know, as we think about them that you leave us with strong sense of music, songs that 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 convey one's life. Tell us what music most touched you as people were uh, recounting their stories. Well, Music is very, very important in that region. I write about the region roughly between Mosul and Aleppo, the north of Iraq through the north of Syria. Music is how they keep their languages alive, how they keep their history alive, how they connect as a people. Um, I was very touched by some young people in Karakosh who lost everything and found one another in exile to rebuild their church choir, for example, singing in their dialect of Aramaic. Um, and somehow through those songs, 
keeping their language alive, keeping their history alive, as well as Kurdish musicians who were seen as historians. Um, and they believed, they taught me that as long as someone sings the songs, then they exist. So the, even if there's no one to hear the song, as long as somebody is still singing the song, then history exists. It hasn't been erased. And so I saw these people really not only as resilient, but as somehow, uh, how can I say it? It's like standing against forgetting. It was something so powerful um, that they were holding memory and they knew even if they were the last person singing the song, as long as they were still singing that song, that song hadn't vanished. It was a very beautiful thing to witness. What's the connection between seeds and hope? One of the, the stories that I found very early in my work, which was really beautiful, was to discover that um, Syrians love makdus. It's a kind of small stuffed eggplant. It's pickled with walnuts and peppers inside. And when the first Syrians from the south, from Dara, uh, crossed the border, they found that the eggplants in Jordan were too big and... This was a disaster. They couldn't make the stuffed eggplant called makdus. So the first thing they did was contact their relatives and said, if you escape, please carry our seeds. And they carried their seeds and they started to plant Syrian seeds. And it wasn't just there. I discovered that this was a story all over the country of people carrying their seeds out of the war. Um, and it's not unique to Syria that this happened in many countries in times of conflict. And for me, that's profound. It really shows not only that there is hope the size, the size of a seed, but that the small things we do really matter. And what is your own connection to hope at this moment? For somebody who lives in the intersection of so many cultures in a place like Bethlehem, where's your hope? I like to tell a story of a French priest in in Jerusalem who pointed out to me that in French there's two words for hope that in English we unfortunately have only one, um, espoir and espérance. There's a sense of the hope we, we make ourselves, the verb, and then a greater theological hope, a hope that comes from God. And he laughed and said, it's great. In French, you cannot have hope and still have hope. Um, and so I've come to believe in that, that even when we reach the limits of our own hope, there's a sense that you wait and a hope comes from outside of you. Um, I think in my experience that often comes in the face of another person, that I can have lost hope and then I meet someone who saved their song and I have hope again, or somebody who saved their seeds, I have hope again, uh, a woman who managed to create a dress and I have hope again. And so often when we reach the limits of our hope, it's other people who give us our hope back to us. And for me, I feel God strongly in those moments. Thank you, Stephanie, for spending some time with us today uh, at the end of your book tour. And you're heading back to your home in Bethlehem in a couple of days. So we're really pr privileged uh, to have you here among us here. So uh, your book, What We Remember, will will be saved. And who is our, the publisher for that? It's Bradley. 
Broadleaf Publishing. And we hear that uh, the first printing of this has sold out, but I'm sure they're going to do another printing really quickly. You can still get them online, so uh, you can still there's still copies to be found out there. But All yeah, right. second second printing is on the way. Yeah. Thank you very much, Stephanie, and please join us again for further episodes of the Out of the Park podcast series. Thanks for joining us at our Out of the Park podcast series. If you like this program and would like to check out more, go to our website at www.bramparkcenter.org.